0: Um, Holy Week is only six days, Sunday through Friday, and yet depending on whether you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, it's anywhere from a little more than a third to almost half the Gospels. We know more about those six days than we know about anything else. And they're also, as you mentioned last week, they are the days that really gave birth to our faith. Our faith did not arise out of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Our faith arose out of the events that happened in Jerusalem. So last week, we looked at the first part of the week, which is to say we looked at Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then Monday. Um, And then many modern scholars say it looks like that Jesus intended for those actually to all be on one day. If you remember right, John sets the stage by giving us four pieces of information. John tells us that uh, Jesus came south from Galilee. And it was a very particular time of the year. Do you remember what it was? Passover and Passover is the high holy day. It's the Easter of the uh, of the Jewish faith. It is the high holy day when when everybody comes. Uh, It is somewhat unusual in that it is a religious event that commemorates a political event. It commemorates the the uh, freeing of the Jews out of slavery out of Egypt in which God had done that. And so in the first century, if you're an occupied country being occupied and controlled by Rome, And you have a holiday that celebrates that God liberates you from these kinds of people. It makes it a very dicey time of year. And so Josephus tells us that on many occasions there were riots, there were revolts that that Rome crushed. The second thing that John tells us is that it's geographically very, very sensitive location. These events take place where? Jerusalem, more specifically, in the temple. And if you know anything about recent history, you know what's been going on in Israel and about And if you want to start a riot in the world, you can do that in many places, but what's the easiest place in the world to start a riot? In Jerusalem and up on the Temple Mount, and that was true back then. So it's a very sensitive time, it's a very sensitive place. Uh, John tells us that the Jews had come in large numbers for this holiday. Josephus is the one who actually tells us that the population of Jerusalem probably went from around 30,000 up to over half a million which always makes the Roman occupiers really nervous, you know, because they have to contend with more people. And you remember, and so the people are gathering and they're gathering, asking a question, which is, would Jesus possibly dare to show? And then the last thing John says is that the enemies of Jesus are also anxious about him coming for an entirely different reason. They would like to get their hands on him so they can bring his career to an end. With that backdrop, we went to the Gospel of Mark And basically the story of Palm Sunday unfolds something like this. It's very clear that Jesus is driving the narrative. He sends people in advance from Galilee down to Jerusalem when he's in Bethany. He sends people in advance up to uh, the town ahead of him to find out that some things have already been arranged. He arranged in advance for there to be a donkey so he could ride down the Mount of Olives. He could do it on a donkey both of which fulfill prophecies in the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah was simply saying, looking back on when Solomon had been anointed king, Solomon had ridden down the Mount of Olives, Mount a Donkey. And so the, the image is, when the Messiah comes, it'll be like another Solomon, another David. You'll enter this way. And so Jesus does that. And then, of course, he will enter the East Gate, which fulfills a prophecy from uh, uh, Ezekiel which is to say that the prince will enter through that gate. The crowds, reading the symbolism that Jesus does, do four things. First is they go nuts, you know. Uh, They begin to take off their cloaks and spread them. Do you remember what the symbolism of the cloak was? King being anointed, okay. Um, (coughs) It's just a tradition in that part of the world. They also grab, uh, and John gives us the detail, they grab palm branches, and again, in the ancient... Near East, palm branches have a very, very specific meaning, borrowed from the Greeks and the Romans, but part of this culture too. Uh, and if you're waving palm branches, what are you saying? You have victory, and again, you're welcoming a deliverer, a king, and you're praying for victory. And so the first word out of their mouth is the Hebrew word, what? Hosanna, which means, and it, by the way, it's basically the same word in Greek and Hebrew, it means deliver us. Sometimes translated save us. We think spiritual salvation. That is not what's going on. You know, we're occupied. Rome is crushing us. It is Passover. You appear to be the king. You appear to be the deliverer. Deliver us. Do it now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming what? Kingdom. Of your servant David. Hosanna in the highest. Mark ends that day by telling us that Jesus then arrives in the temple, which is the goal of this entire thing. The whole point is to get into the temple, and he gets there, but it's late in the day, and he cannot do what he came to do, and therefore he retreats back to Bethany. The next day he comes out, and he does that which he apparently had planned to do on Palm Sunday as the climax of everything he'd done That is he goes into the temple. He basically symbolically shuts it down. Disrupts it. Mark says he cannot bring anything in or out. John says basically the same thing. He quotes two scriptures. He quotes from Isaiah. My house is meant to be called a house of prayer for all people. Is it? It's not. There's all these restrictions. And then from uh, Jeremiah he says. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so a sharp rebuke of the temple. Now. What we're going to do today is we want to focus on the parts of the week that lead up to the things we're going to celebrate. Starting Thursday, uh, you know, some people just make it from Easter to Easter, right? (laughs) Once a year is good enough. Now, if you're particularly religious, you might make it twice, Easter and Christmas, you know. And if you're really religious, you might make it on Sunday kind of thing. Most people will make it from Palm Sunday to what? Easter, maybe. And if they're really really religious they might pick up on Thursday and Friday the interesting thing is there's all these things going on the Holy Week in between that we never deal with and never cover so today I want us to do the backstory of that so that as we celebrate these things we have a real sense of what led to them so we're going to focus today on Tuesday and Wednesday and then this week Thursday we will pick up on the services and stuff so uh, these are going to set the stage. For these three events that we're about to celebrate, this is the backstory. You know, if you just jump into Monday, Thursday without any kind of a backstory, the story may have some kind of a disconnect. But if we know the backstory, it makes much more sense to us. So, Tuesday. We have more information, more verbiage, more words about Tuesday than any other two days of the week, okay? There's a lot going on on Tuesday. As you might imagine, Jesus has just come in and started up a hornet's nest. And where was the last place in the world he should be on Tuesday? In Jerusalem, the temple. Where does he go? Right smack dab back again. So according to Mark 11. Again, they came to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking in the temple. He returns for the third day in a row. Palm Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. Ground zero. The chief priests, the scribes and elders came to him and said, how dare you? By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do them? Now, what authority? um, The term that's often used in the New Testament for these people is they are the authorities. And, you know, we know who gave them the authority. These are the minions of the Roman Empire. They run the temple on behalf of the Roman Empire to make sure that there's peace, make sure everything works the way it goes. And they're appointed by Rome. And, you know, for over 200 years, who appoints the high priest? Yeah, the Roman procurator. it's not chosen by the people Pontius Pilate picks and chooses. He keeps Caiaphas for a long time because the two of them apparently worked well together. These things, uh, it's easy to immediately focus on Monday. I mean, you go in there and shut the temple down, even if it's symbolic. And even if it's just for a few moments, that will get people's attention. But the money is on the fact that they're probably referring not just to Monday, but also to Sunday. How dare you come in here and pretend to claim to be the Messiah? How dare you come in here and get everybody's hopes up and stir the crowd at this very all the time? And how dare you come into the temple and disrupt it like you did? Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question. Their question is, by what authority? Okay. He'll go with them. I'll ask you a question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I've got a question for you. You answer this question, and I'll give you the answer to your question. Sounds like a fair deal. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it from human origin? Trick question. There's no way they can answer that and get off the mountain alive, okay? Uh, And they know that. They argued with one another, for they say, if we say from heaven, then he will say, then why didn't you believe him? Now, they didn't kill John the Baptist. That was Herod up north. But with John the Baptist's uh, baptizing for the remission of sins, John was uh, offering for free what the temple was offering. And there could be some real tension there, and this is probably an indication of that. So if they say that he was from God, from heaven, then why did you dismiss him? Which apparently they did. But if we say from human origin, And basically the text here just goes dot, dot, dot and leaves it unanswered. What's the problem? If they say from human origin, who's going to be upset? The people. They were afraid of the crowd for all regarded John as a true prophet. So Jesus puts that question out there to them. So they answered Jesus. We don't know. It's a safe answer to that question. Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And he just basically sidesteps the whole issue. He then goes on the attack. <coughs> he tells the parable of the vineyard. Now the parable of the vineyard goes back to Isaiah. The prophet chapter 5. I will tell you singing you a song in my vineyard. And the vineyard imagery is an imagery for the nation of Israel. Israel is God's vineyard. And in this parable Jesus. I'm just, just going to look at a little piece of it. Began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and the fence around it. Uh, the vineyard is Israel. The, the planter of course is God. And the parable then begins to talk about these care, these people who t- supposedly took care of the vineyard. But in fact, did they? They did not. And so the parable winds up being a, a condemnation of the, vi- the vineyard keepers. And by the way, who do you think they might be? They're not dumb. You know. They figure out real quickly that this is targeted to them. As Mark says, when they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him but Mark says this every day. Only one thing keeps them from eliminating Jesus. He's a loved love by the crowd. This is one of those weird things. It is very common and popular uh, to talk about the crowd on Palm Sunday and the crowd on Good Friday as being the same crowd. And they're not. You know, the people, there's <laughs> no evidence that the people ever gave up on Jesus. Now, the crowd on Friday actually takes place inside Pontius Pilate's palace and do you think he's going to let the riffraff in there? Different crowds. So the crowds love Jesus. They're protecting him. Second group are the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is really interesting because as uh, Josephus narrates who the Herodians are, these are basically the people who had supported the Herods, uh, even though he's not in power right now, and the Pharisees, uh, by the way, these two groups have been killing each other for 200 years. So what does it tell you that they've gotten together? They perceive a common enemy. Okay. This will unite them. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Okay. They are sent by the priest who just left. And that implies a coordinated attack. What it looks like, according to Mark, is that various groups who do not necessarily agree on most things have agreed on one thing. Jesus must be stopped. And so we seem to have a coordinated attack here. Mark twelve thirteen. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in what he said. So they apparently have come up with a ploy. They got a trap. We've got something Jesus can't get out of. He thinks he's so smart. Let him deal with this. We think we got him. Teacher, we know you're sincere. You show deference to no one. You do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Do you trust a word of that? When somebody starts heaping on the praise, do you get a little worried? You ought to be. Okay. Um, Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Uh, Mark tells us this is a trap. Okay. If you say no, it's not lawful that we should pay taxes to Caesar Let's not pay them. What happens? Short life expectancy. Okay. (laughs) You know, Uh, there were a series of tax revolts, Judas the Galilean being the the big name, uh, that had occurred just before this, and Rome already demonstrated what they did with tax revolts. You know, anybody that survives the legions is then crucified. That's how you handle that. You just exterminate the lot. Okay. Now, if you say, okay, I'm going to avoid Rome here. Uh, I'll say it's not okay to pay tax. I mean, it it is okay to pay taxes. Then what happens? Who's going to object to that? Everybody else on the mountain. Who hates Rome. Who hates the burden and the taxes that are crushing him down. So they've got a really good question here. Either way, you're dead. Now, what's most likely going on here is that they probably don't figure that Jesus will say something against Rome overtly uh, but if he doesn't then the more likely answer is he might try to somehow say something that would not get him killed by Rome that but would alienate the crowds now according to Mark what's the only thing keeping Jesus alive the crowds if they can force him to say something that the crowd didn't like and alienated the crowd and separate the crowd who are they going to have they're going to have their hands on Jesus. Be- that's a guess, but it's the best guess. Uh, again, Mark tells us over and over. Verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Now, who here knows what a denarius is? It's a coin. Whose coin? It's a Roman coin. It, it's, not, it's not a shekel. It's, not, it's, it's a particular kind of coin. It uh, came into being about 200 B.C., And by the way, the ones that have just been minted for the last 20, 25 years are really interesting because you're looking at one of them. This is a picture of the coin that would have been at the temple that day. Bring me a denarius and let me see it, says Jesus. Okay, they brought one. Just happened to have one, you know, right there. Uh, Which Which they're not supposed to. Why? Why is it illegal to have Roman coin in the temple? Now, yeah, there's a lot going on here. OK. Why do we have money changers? You've got to change the Roman coins into non-Roman coins before you bring them into the temple because Roman coins cannot be brought into the temple for a couple of reasons. So here's where Jesus has him. Who's had? Good looking guy, by the way. Who is that? It's Augustus, Augustus Caesar. And over the years, this changed the head. Uh, same thing else. Whose title? You know, we, we get a lot of mileage out of the fact that, you know, uh, whose picture is this and all that. But actually, that's not even the important question. The really important question is, what's written on the coin? And that's where it gets really interesting. Yeah. They answered Caesar's. Jesus said to them, okay, render unto Caesar, the old King James Version, that which is Caesar and unto God, which is God's. And, and, the theory I always taught is at that point everybody starts scratching their head going what the heck does that mean you know uh, well it depends on what you how you understand God okay Jesus has his own trick they are standing in the temple he asked them for a Roman coin which they're not allowed to have and they just happen to have one showing that they're in the pocket of Rome just as Rome is in their pocket they are collaborators That's what that proves who pays for all this Rome pays for all this they're getting Roman money money from Caesar by asking whose image kind of brings that out in the open And by the way the crowds are overlooking okay this is not the Julius Caesar fan club okay and they're they're hearing all this Jesus then asked whose title and again the coin that Jesus asked for and which they just happen to have not only has the image but it has the title And some of you seen this before uh, it is a title that proclaims Caesar as Dv. Latin experts, God, divine, Dv filius or filii would be sons, but the filius would be singular. And by the way, do you see the? Uh, you barely see it. The F. It's actually they just abbreviated because they didn't have time there. It's the son of God. So every coin in the Roman Empire of this period has caesar's image and has a message caesar is God. caesar is the son of god Okay, so not only are they on rome's as collaborators they're also by definition i mean carrying this around in the countryside is one thing to bring it into the temple according to josephus there are three major riots started by pontius pilate all three of which violated this one is the day he took power in rome he The standards remember the standards the Roman legions bury they have words and images on them. He tried to carry them into the temple compound and there was a riot and thousands died. Uh, There was a story of it during this time Caligula wanted to put his image into the temple. And again that was narrowly averted kind of thing. So they brought the sacrilege into the heart of the temple and Jesus has brought all this to light. I mean he knew this. It's not a secret. But by asking for the coin. And then flashing the coin. He has just neutralized their question. And now they're (coughs) on the defensive. Third attack. Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? They're very closely related. To the chief priests. And the ones who run the temple. The Sadducees are basically. The priestly elite. There's a larger group of them. And from the Sadducees. A certain number of families. were the chief priests. And from them. the The office of high priest. Gets passed around. So this is a. Some of the first group it's a little larger group. Uh, they're part of the aristocracy now. Josephus gives us a little backstory that kind of helps us here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees according to Josephus are opposites in this sense. The Sadducees are conservative religiously. They only accept the first five books of the Bible scripture the Torah. They don't accept the prophets they don't accept the writings. So if you don't have if you have any belief that is not found in the Torah the first five books they don't accept it. Now, the Pharisees accept the prophets and the writings and all kinds of other beliefs. And among the beliefs that you have in the larger writings that are not found in the Torah are these, a belief in the devil, a belief in demons, angels, uh, and the resurrection of the dead. And so the Sadducees do not accept any of these because you cannot find those beliefs in the Torah. Verse 12. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, exactly what Josephus says, came to him and asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us because this is the only scripture they acknowledge, the books of Moses, the first five books, that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife with no child, the man shall marry the widow and then father and raise up the child for his brother. You familiar with this, the book of Ruth, this is called the Leveret Law. If a man marries a woman and he dies and she has no male heir and the family's about to become extinct and we cannot inherit property or all those kinds of things, it is the obligation of the nearest male relative to marry her, father a male child, so now that family and that line and that inheritance and all that can come. Make sense? Okay, that's the premise behind it. That's the premise behind the book of Ruth. Remember Boaz. He has the right of redemption over Ruth. He's the Leveret person. OK. Now the f- fair uh, the Sadducees have this little story they've concocted. It's a it's a doozy. There were seven brothers. Now it's interesting because in the Maccabean period. There was another story of seven brothers who were the seven martyrs. This is a little different. There's seven brothers. The first married. And when he died, he left no children. Bing. The Leveret law comes into action. It is the obligation of the next male relative. How many brothers does he have? Six months, okay. Second married the widow and died, leaving no children. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, okay. None of the seven had children. Last of all, the woman herself died, okay. Wild story, but there you have it, okay. This is the premise, okay. Now the question. In the resurrection, Jesus, that you and the Pharisees believe in, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had married her. That's not a good trap. You know, if you're going to believe in the the the. Uh, by the way, do they believe in the, the resurrection? No, they don't believe any of this stuff. They've just concocted the trap. Jesus said to them, "It is is not this the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God." By the way, this is the only place that Jesus actually talks about what the resurrected life will be like. For they then rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, which is basically what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Same thing. Okay, Sadducees don't believe in it. Yes, they ask a question about it, which tells you right up front not to take this seriously. The the purpose of the question is to ridicule this belief. And apparently they've heard enough of the teaching of Jesus. They know he believes in the resurrection, so they're going to attack it. Uh, so Jesus's answer is basically you're just dunderhead idiots. Uh, you're wrong. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. The resurrection is not just a restoration of what was before. And so like Paul, Jesus affirms the resurrected body will not be like the bodies we are. today. Now, according to Paul, what's remember what Paul calls the body a. Spiritual body. OK, same kind of thing, not like the one you had before. Okay, now we have a scribe step forward. He's the last one. Scribes are among the, they're the junior assistant under flunky priests. Okay. They're they're lower echelon. They're not they're not anywhere near the ruling elite. They do have the ability to read and write, which means they have some power, but they're basically assistants. They're the water getters. Scribes run and get the scribes and Levites, same thing. They run and get the water, they get the wood, they take care of things. On this occasion, or on some occasions, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus may have some particularly harsh words for the scribes. And Matthew, remember, alas for you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites that you are? That's that's Matthew. In Mark, we don't have any of that. Uh, this scribe appears very sympathetic. He does not appear he's part of this attack. So Mark 12 28. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. He's just eavesdropping. Got a really good fight going on here between Jesus and these various groups. He's intrigued seeing that Jesus answered them. Well, he's impressed. He asked Jesus a question. Which commandment? Is the first of all, by the way, how many commandments are there in the Old Testament? (laughs) 10. You have the 10 commandments. It's actually more. 600 and something. I hear the number 614. But i not realized until lately that the the Jews in the first century had what they call the oral Torah that will eventually become the Mishnah and the Talmud and stuff. And there seems to have been somewhere around 8,000 other little rules and guidelines and commandments about how you would do the 10 that become the 612 that become so. We're looking at about 9,000. Now, can you keep 9,000 commandments straight? I'm doing good with 10. There was a national test on several times. Who can name the Ten Commandments? Less than one out of ten Americans, okay? Uh, so, keeping that. So, it's a good question. this By the way, this was the question of the first century. Great rabbis debated it, you know. If we got all these commandments and uh, we can't remember them all, then which one should be the most important? Ten Commandments would be a good runner for that. And again, you're one of the great questions of the age. Uh, this is the, s- the answer that Jesus gives to the scribe. Very famous, you've heard it a bazillion times. Jesus answered the first is this here is for the Lord our God the Lord is one remember that it's called the Shema that's the Apostles Creed of the Jewish faith how many gods are there one you shall love that Lord with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength this is taken from the book of Deuteronomy okay now typical Jesus you ask him for one he's going to give you two okay uh the second is this. He's going to toss one in. that's a freebie. You shall love the neighbor as yourself. By the way, do you remember on the Ten Commandments, how many tablets are there? After Moses dropped one, there's just two. Okay, <laughs> On the left are commandments about. On the right are commandments about. And Jesus has just summarized God and. yeah. He's just summarized. The second one's from Leviticus. But he's basically summarized the Ten Commandments. It appears in um, primarily the primacy. No other gods before me or literally in my face. Don't stick your other gods in my face. Okay. That will become monotheism with Isaiah. But at this time, because clearly they had other gods. What's Aaron doing down at the bottom of the hill? A little golden calf, you know, all that was going on down there. Yeah, good question. Uh, no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you got it. I agree with you. You cannot drive a piece of paper between our answers. Scribe and Jesus agree. Truly, you have said he is one, Ahad. There is no other. Love him with your heart, your understanding, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no disagreement between them on this. He should have stopped there. He doesn't. Because now he's going to add something that Jesus didn't say. This is much more important than any burnt offerings sacrifices Do you get that the subject just changed when Jesus saw he answered wisely what's the wise answer love God love neighbor or this is more important than what goes on in the temple Jesus said to him at this moment you are not far from the kingdom of God interesting interchange okay they're in complete agreement the scribe goes on to add It is a bombshell. And where are they standing? Where is this conversation happening? Smack dab in the inner court of the temple. Loving God and love your neighbor is more important than whatever goes on here. Any burnt offerings and sacrifices. I'm guessing the wind is blowing the offerings. The smell of the offerings across them as they're having this conversation. Uh, And this seems to be what Jesus says. He's answered wisely. Because they agree on the other thing. But he's wisely added something. And again, this statement, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus only about three times will ever say to a person, you are near or at or in the kingdom of God. And this is one of them. So it's high praise indeed. Jesus now goes on the attack again. This time he's going to choose the location. He's going to choose the topic. Where he goes is interesting. He sits down opposite the treasury. So anybody bringing money into the treasury, you know, he's got to walk right past him. He watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. One of the things he observes is that all the Highland Park people put their money there. Okay, you know, rich people putting in large sums of money. Then he notices a poor widow. This is the widow's mite. Okay. Two small copper coins which are worth a penny. And he called his disciples and said to them. Who remembers the story? How's the story end? What impresses Jesus? Yeah, her offering because why? All she had. Sh- sacrificial giving more more for her. It was more of a sacrifice to do that than it was for them to Okay, opposite the treasury. He chooses the location. Uh, possibly the same area he cleansed on Monday. And this is where this little map. Um, we talk about the Nicanor gate. Talked about that. This is the inner temple. Court of the Gentiles. Court of Israel of the Women, this is that gate where you're going to carry your offerings to It looks like on Monday, that's where he shut the temple down. If you take Mark literally that he shuts the temple down in a small geographic area, this is the only place he could do it. By the way, this is now where he's at. He's just moved across the corner. So it looks like that Jesus is basically dead smack dab in the very heart of the temple where everything happens. And this is where he's doing all this at that time. Again, it's another critique of the temple operation leadership, but it's not a critique of the temple and it's not a critique of her offering her offering gets praised. He didn't have a problem with offering didn't have a problem with the temple. He does have some issues with the people who run the temple. Now, Jesus now leaves the temple. He's going to leave for the last time. He will never return here again. But Mark gives us one more story as they're leaving, and it is fascinating. As they came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, we don't know which one it was, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. This is recently excavated in Jerusalem about 20 years ago. You're looking at 600 tons. One rock. According to Roman records and Greek records uh, of, the, of the time, the temple in Jerusalem was considered to be the largest, most ornate. And the most wonderful temple that existed in the Roman Empire non Jews would come from all over the Roman Empire It was what not one of the seven wonders of the world the Greeks named those but it was it was a wonder to behold and they're impressed Jesus said do you see these great buildings they're going "Uh huh better believe we do Spent about 35 years building it by the way at the time Jesus is doing this they're still building they are still finishing it it will not be finished until two years before it's destroyed one stone will be left on another all will be torn down now this is the wailing wall in Jerusalem and if you go to the right a little bit or actually if you go down they've actually excavated down the original foundations the wailing wall is 70 feet above where the original floor was and so this is one of those stones down there you can see that you can put see where they kind of lifted it we still don't know how they did that those are bigger than the stones in the pyramids we're not sure how they did that we know where they were quarried we're just not sure how they got them there This was excavated recently. This is the Western Wall. Uh, On the other side of this wall is the Wailing Wall, about 70 feet up. This is the original first century payment. And what do you see here? This is all the rocks of the temple that the Romans threw over when they destroyed the temple. So what Jesus is describing is exactly what happens. And one of the discussions is is Mark's writing his gospel about the time this is happening. So is Mark sort of working backwards, knowing it's going to happen, or is Jesus... You know prophesying that it's going to happen Tuesday ends. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives where it all started. And he's gazing across the temple. And he's teaching about the destruction of the temple. By the way this will be an issue at his trial. One of the charges against Jesus is he prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. Guilty as charged. He did indeed do that. Wednesday very quickly. Three days everything's focused on the temple. On Wednesday the scene is going to shift away from the temple. We're going to go out to Bethany. A little small town that's actually inside Jerusalem today. Mark's gospel narrates two events. One there, one back in Jerusalem. Uh, The main one is in Bethany. He's at the house of Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar. Familiar with the story? Okay. Now this is where it gets real complicated. Because there are in fact four different stories that probably are not related to each other. And they all get conflated together. You've got in Luke the uh, sinner. The woman is a sinner. You've got John named Mary. You've got another story that Mary names Mary Magdalene, but it's not even a story like this. There was a pope in the sixth century. Remember that story? Who in his famous Easter sermon said, uh, I believe, and he's clearly giving his opinion. I believe that the woman in Mark and the woman in Luke and the other woman in Luke and the woman in John are in fact all the same women, same woman. They're not. But when a pope says it, it carries authority. And so that's how you get Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, anointed Jesus. None of that is in here, okay? An unnamed woman, and there's nothing negative about her. She's the only person in the room who gets Jesus and Mark. She's a prophet. She gets it. She understands what's going on. She takes a, j- a jar of alabaster nard. She breaks it. Uh, she pours the ointment on his head. Uh, some objected to the waste. One gospel said it was Luke uh, Judas. Another gospel said it was just All the disciples here. They're just unnamed probably disciples. Jesus said leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. So this is the anointing story. Truly I tell you whatever is good. Wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world. What she has done will be told in remembrance of her. And here we are 2014 and we're telling it. Okay. So in fact it still happens. Unnamed woman, not Mary Magdalene, prophetic figure. Unlike the male disciples, who Mark's been real clear about, Jesus has kept saying over and over and over, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, betrayed into the hands of sinners. He will be crucified, killed, buried the third day in the res- he will be resurrected. And they believe him each and every time, right? No, they don't believe a word of it. They're struggling. They Dying and Messiah does not work for them together. You know, She seems to understand. The story has been understood to say that she anoints Jesus. But in fact, the story does not say that. If you actually look at what's said, something else is going on. It's odd. Judaism does not have an anointing of a body before dead. And actually, Judaism does not have an anointing of a body even after you're dead. You would put stuff on it, But the term anointing is not used on the face of it. It makes no sense to speak about anointing a body, particularly before they've died. Um, And in the story, we're in fact not told that she anointed them, but that she broke the jar and she put it on him. Who's the one who calls it anointing? Jesus. It's Jesus that adds that interpretation. He's driving the story as he's driven, driven the whole week. Jesus calls her act an anointing and it's Jesus who connects the anointing with his death again, which there is no connection ancient world uh, and gives it an entirely different meaning anointing is political. We know what anoint means, right? You know, a king, you know, a prophet, you're anointed for a particular reason. Um, they're anointed on the head, which is exactly what she has done. All week, Jesus has sent the message. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed. And with with this woman's act, he seems to reinforce that message again. Uh, He calls it anointing and he connects it to his death. Strictly speaking, you don't anoint for a death. But anointing actually has a broader meaning. And if you look at the broader meaning, all the pieces fall together and it starts to make sense. To anoint means to consecrate, to set aside or to dedicate to God. So, you anoint a king, you're dedicating him to God. You anoint a priest, you're dedicating him to God. You anoint a prophet, you're dedicating him to God. She does this, and Jesus says, She has anointed me for my burial. And at that point, the pieces kind of come together. By calling the woman's act anointing and connecting it to his death, what she does is saying, He's been consecrated, dedicated, to God for a particular act for a particular function for what's about to happen on Friday this is something that Jesus has been saying over and over it the disciples are struggling they cannot understand it he's still trying to teach them still trying to drive home the point even though they refuse to accept it uh, it's now imminent within 24 hours this will begin to happen and then Mark ends with one final scene back in Jerusalem. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. Now, what's really interesting about the NRSV, the the word betrayed was in there twice, right? The word betrayed is not in the gospel. It's in some other gospels. The word that's actually used is the word handover. It's the word Paul uses. Uh. Paul says that God handed Jesus over. Paul says that Jesus handed Jesus over. And Paul says he was handed over. Is it different between that and being betrayed? The Gospel of Mark said that Judas handed Jesus over. It's one of those weird things. Did Jesus come to die? Was that his purpose? If that's true and if it fulfills prophecy, why is what Judas did wrong? Why do we not celebrate Judas? For empowering and facilitating the very thing that you, if you go back to Paul and Mark, you could read that pretty easily, but very quickly, the betrayal language comes in. As you move forward, it gets worse and worse. Uh, in Mark, they offer him money. In Luke oh no, Matthew, Judas asks for money. In Luke, the devil enters him, and in John, he's the devil. That's what you call an upgrade. Okay, <laughs> the further you go, the worse Judas gets. But at the earliest level. You could argue that Jesus is driving this. It's deliberate. And Judas is working with him. Didn't it also say that he was embezzling the funds? Matthew. Okay, It's not in Mark. But you begin to wonder reasons. Why would he do this? Why would he betray Jesus? Well, he had the funds. He was embezzling. You know, when, And most of the Gospels say, well, G- Judas actually kept the funds, which means I would think he was trusted. So yeah, we begin to get all these reasons. That's why that gets you later in the week. Okay, uh, but there's the actual word, and it's not. It's a later deal. We're not told why Judas did this, but with this, the stage is set. Everything's taking place. At this point, we're going to enter the most familiar part of the week—the parts that we celebrate. On Thursday, Jesus will go uh, Jerusalem for the last time. He'll celebrate the Passover with his disciples. By the way, what's the Passover about? This is my body. This is my blood still interpreting his death as what's about to happen. Uh, And then we go into Friday night. So we will not meet next week. Enjoy Monday, Thursday. Enjoy good Friday. Enjoy Easter. And then two weeks in the day, what we're going to do for the rest of the spring is there are 23 resurrection narratives. Let's just have fun. Work through them. We'll start with the open tomb or the empty tomb and just kind of work forward. Yes.